Psalm 96 and verse 1. Psalm 96 and verse 1. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. This psalm was first written to mark the moving of the Ark of the Covenant by David uh, from a private house to a formal permanent resting place in Jerusalem. So the context of this psalm is the re-establishment of true worship in Israel. David now has secure occupation of the throne and the Lord is bringing blessing upon the nation. David knows that the worship of God must be the central focus of the nation's life. And that is the significance of his moving of the ark. For there, above the mercy seat, the ark's top covering, the Lord has promised to meet with his people. Israel is in receipt of new mercies at the Lord's hand. And so the people must render to him a new song of praise. In the book of Revelation, the redeemed in heaven are said to be singing a new song. Because they have been rescued uh, from their old natures and from this old fallen world. The Lord Jesus Christ has for them made all things new. So we read in Revelation 14 and verse 1. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him an hundred, forty, and four thousand, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. The 144,000, a multiple of seven, this denotes perfection. This is the complete number of the redeemed, a symbolic number denoting the company of the redeemed. And they are singing the song which will never tarnish with time. A song which is forever new, praising God for their great salvation through faith in Christ. (coughs) Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Then we read in verse 2, Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation. The verb, uh, show forth, in the original language, uh, is literally, bring glad tidings. Uh, Under David, Israel has experienced powerful 
deliverance from her enemies. And her possession of Canaan is now consolidated. The glad tidings of this salvation, this rescuing of the nation, must be made known. Israel's increasing strength and security was because king and people were being obedient to God. The Lord's hand was upon them for good. And we must remember that Israel's possession of the land of Canaan is a prophetic foreshadowing of belonging to the spiritual kingdom of God. And uh, we read uh, a short while ago in Luke 17 and verse 20. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And so here we are being taught that the Old Testament earthly kingdom prefigures the New Testament spiritual kingdom. Therefore, just as Israel praised God for their new security in the earthly land under David, so believers in Christ today praise God for their spiritual security in the spiritual kingdom under David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so true Christians are those who are singing a new song of deliverance. Deliverance from their enemies. Deliverance from the world, the flesh and the devil. Sadly, the Christian gospel is often corrupted today. And the churches are speaking about deliverance from poverty. Deliverance from social injustice. Deliverance from inequality. But that is not the deliverance which scripture speaks of. The sinner needs delivering from his slavery to sin. So as the New Testament believer sings this psalm here, he is praising God for his deliverance from the power of Satan. Because before conversion, each unbeliever is in allegiance with the prince of this world. And so the new song is praising God for being rescued from Satan's grasp. And we are further told in the second part of this verse 2, show forth his salvation from day to day. There is never a wrong time to praise God for having saved us. 
and his mercies to the believer are ongoing. So that we always have new reasons for which to praise God. Lamentations 3 verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so... For the Christian, each new day is cause to render a new song of thanksgiving to our God. Whilst it is specifically Israel which is praising God here, we also see in fact that the whole earth is under an obligation to praise him. We see this in the first verse. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Now it's interesting. David is uh, setting forth praise to God for a national deliverance. Yet he also at the same time says that the whole earth should be praising God. And this is because all men are God's creatures and answerable to him. Every individual throughout the whole earth is answerable to the one true Trinitarian God. And so we read in the third verse here, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. And here we see that the faith of Old Testament Israel was never meant to remain confined to one nation. Israel's God always has been the God of the whole earth. The Gentile nations were in a culpable darkness for not trusting in the one true God. Indeed, throughout the Old Testament period, there always was a small minority of Gentiles who did put their trust in Jehovah, the God of Israel. And uh, we, of course, recall that when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, it was, in fact, Gentile wise men who came from the east To worship him. He came not only as Israel's promised saviour. But as the saviour of all men. John 10 verse 16. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So here the Lord testifies that his coming is to bring the Gentiles into his fold as well. And this one fold is God's true Israel, the true church, 
not any man-made organisation, but the true gathering of those regenerated by God's Holy Spirit. And so we see that the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom of God, has this universal nature. Uh, This is not to say, of course, that nationhood should be abolished. Uh, God's decree at the time of the Tower of Babel, uh, that, that men should form into separate nations, has never been rescinded. But the kingdom of God, the gathering of the redeemed, is a universal gathering of men out of every nation. This is demonstrated by the events on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles began to speak in many different languages to the gathered pilgrims from many nations. Uh, And so we read there in Acts 2 and verse 8, How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And then Peter, uh, in order to explain this phenomenon, he lifted up his voice and said, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Which means men of every nation, not just Israel. And so this pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the subsequent speaking in various tongues indicates that the Christian gospel uh, is indeed for all nations and not just for Israel. And of course this reveals to us the utterly satanic nature of the multi-faith movement today. And we have to be on our guard because many are trying to claim that Jews and Muslims and Christians are all children of Abraham and all worship the same God. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because only those who believe in God's Son worship the Father. And so we see the universal nature of the kingdom of God. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. Our English word heathen is related to the word ethnic, uh, meaning the peoples, the nations of the world. And so men of all nations and of all faiths are under obligation to submit to the Trinitarian God and to the Lord Jesus Christ who died 
for the sins of man. So the church must tell the whole world about God's glory, his unassailable power in governing the earth, and about how mortal man is mere clay in the hands of the one true God. And so, as we endeavour to preach the gospel to those around us today, uh, we have the authority to do so because every human being is under an obligation to render praise to the one true Trinitarian God. All are breathing at God's behest. All are living in God's creation. Indeed, the very creation itself renders all without any excuse for their failure to believe in the Trinitarian God. God is eternal. Man is mortal. And man needs to be confronted with his worm-like status before the glory of the holy, omnipotent God. And so it's not the church's task to talk all, all about human rights. It's the church's task to show men their true condition before the omnipotent God. Hopeless sinners. Not people demanding their rights, but those crying out for mercy. Declare his glory among the heathen. You see, this is the problem with our unbelieving society. They have no perception of the glory and honour and majesty and dignity of our God. Because they're so wrapped up in thinking about the dignity of man. Uh, But man has lost his dignity. He lost it in the fall. Man has nothing to be proud of. The proud Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar had to humble himself before the one true God of Israel. God and his providence brought Nebuchadnezzar very low. He had to break his pride. And when Nebuchadnezzar's pride was broken, he then did exactly what the psalm says here. He began to declare God's glory among the heathen. And so uh, we read in Daniel 4 and verse 34... Nebuchadnezzar declares, I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honoured him that liveth forever. This is a Gentile emperor. Him whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
See, no human rights there. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And so we today must proclaim the omnipotence of God. He controls this earth. He controls the climate. Millions of people believe that man controls the climate. And when a natural disaster occurs, we have to have the courage to say to an unbelieving world, this is the finger of God. We believe in the God who is able to shape the earth and remove its foundations by a single word. And people must be taught to fear God or else they will never come to humble themselves before him. The unbeliever will never experience God's love and mercy until he first learns to fear God. And sadly, so many churches have abandoned the need to tell men they must fear God. They go straight into God loves you. Which is turning the gospel upside down. Tell a confident sinner God loves him and he'll say, fine, I'll carry on just as I am. We must tell those around us that they are in danger and that they must fear the God who is angry with their sin. And our society needs to regain an apprehension of the glory and majesty of God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counsellor? You see, man should submit before the infinitely superior wisdom of God. But we have a government today which glories in its rejection of God's wisdom. How proud they are of their redefinition of marriage. They are attempting to make themselves counsellors over and above the almighty God. Who hath been his counsellor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory for ever and ever. And so Paul there in Romans 11 is 
declaring the vastness of God's power and wisdom. A man could never do anything to put God in his debt. Puny mortals cannot even begin to understand the immensity of God's power and knowledge. God is self-existent. He's dependent upon none other. So how dare worm-like man deign to question the one who is the creator of all living things. And the one who ordained marriage at the beginning of time as being between a man and a woman only. How dare puny man question that. Declare his wonders among all people. Verse 3. Now wonders are acts way beyond man's feeble comprehension. You see, man in all his pride thinks that because he cannot understand how the earth could possibly have been created from nothing in six 24-hour days, then the Bible must be wrong. But the problem lies with man's incapacity of understanding regarding God's nature. Not with any scientific deficiency in the scriptural account of creation. So we have to declare his wonders among all people. And that means also saying that he created the world in six 24-hour days, around 6,000 years ago. Darwinian evolution is not observational science. Evolution from a genetically simple creature into a totally different and more complex creature is nowhere currently observed by any means of scientific testing. The evolutionists do not have science on their side. Yet this God-rejecting philosophy is clung to so rigidly by our society because it cannot face up to the consequences of the alternative. If God is the creator, then men must submit to him and repent of their sins. Molecules to man evolution requires the input of new genetic information by the process of mutation and natural selection. Mutations, however, are random. And they only corrupt the genome. They do not add new information, such as would be necessary, for example, for a reptile to evolve into a bird. And so we as Christians must boldly proclaim the wonders of God's creation to men. 
Let us not be ashamed of it. Science is on our side. It's God's word. And we should also proclaim the wonders of his ongoing control of creation. We have had serious flooding in recent years. Who knows, we we might have a, a serious drought this summer. There might be an earthquake in a major city next week. What will we do as Christians when these things happen? We should be saying to the society around us, this is the hand of the Lord. All convulsions in nature happen at God's instigation. Verse 4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Now in Old Testament times the Gentile nations had their own gods. There were numerous regional gods. But this was really the worship of demons. Because Satan is behind all false religion. Now we live in a society where the powers that be are are trying to stop us saying that. That other religions are false. The gods that the Gentile nations did not really exist. And the images constructed to represent them were made by mere men. The evil spirits behind such worship, however, really do exist. And so whilst the Gentiles had their local deities, not true gods at all, The God of Israel is the one true God of the whole universe. That is what David is saying here. The Gentiles, blinded by Satan, worshipped the sun, moon and stars. All those primitive peoples. Yet you will still find uh, astrological charts in national newspapers today. Nothing has changed so we need to declare to man that there's only one true God. The one who created all the heavenly spheres. These are mere physical objects. Bound to time that they lack any eternal nature. And so these heavenly spheres, far from being over men, are merely God-given aids to men. They beautify the earth and they assist men in their earthly concerns the stars help us for example to navigate but they were never meant to be objects of worship so the psalmist says here that the omnipotent trinitarian God is to be feared above all these false gods now this does not mean that the people should worship the God of Israel more than they worship the other gods. 
but besides and instead of all the other gods, which are no real gods at all. And again, let us particularly take heed there in verse 4 of the word fear. Whilst the believer in Christ has no fear of condemnation and rejoices in God's mercy towards him, he never stops reverencing God as the one who is infinitely greater than he and to whom all obedience must be rendered. The true Christian never stops fearing God. If someone who professes to be a Christian is not afraid of falling into sin and the consequences, then we really have to question where they stand. Proverbs 23, verse 17. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Dare we say that much of the contemporary church has lost this emphasis? Be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Oh, well, that's bad marketing. No one will become a Christian if you talk to them like that. Well, we must be true to God's word. We must encourage the unbeliever to fear God. Verse 5, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Notice that to challenge false religion, David uses the fact of creation here, of God's creating power. False gods which dare to impinge upon the greatness of the creator God must be denounced. And so we have to denounce false religion as Christians. We speak the truth in love, but we have to say error is error. And the secular liberal establishment is trying to take away that liberty to denounce false religion. They will argue, well, it creates social disharmony if you start saying other people's religion is false. Well, what does the word of God say? All the gods of the nations are idols. Things of vanity. Nothing. And Satan is behind them. So we have to call falsehood by its proper name. The Hebrew for idol literally means a thing of naught, of no value. And so we have to proclaim the uniqueness of the one true God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And let us not be deceived by claims that the monotheistic religions of the world all worship the same God. The God of the other monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism, is not our God. 
Because the true God cannot deny the existence of his own son. Refusal to worship God the Son is refusal to worship God the Father. Because the Father and Son are one. They are one in essence. Let us observe here in this fifth fifth verse uh, how the psalmist uses God's creating power as the foundation of his argument the Lord made the heavens and and so this must be a primary evangelistic argument that we use today God is creator you are his creature you are answerable to him and the fact of God's creation renders you without excuse for your unbelief Psalm 147, verse 4. We read of the Creator God. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Now, not even the most skillful astronomer in all the earth knows all the stars and has a name for them all. But our God does. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. He covereth the heaven with clouds. He prepareth rain for the earth. He maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him. Psalm 147 verse 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that Fear him. So again we see the emphasis on the need to fear God. Verse 6. Honour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. God is clothed with majesty. He has an unassailable supremacy over his creatures. Men must prostrate themselves before him. His strength means that he is the author of life and of death. And and this is why we are so opposed to abortion at one end of the spectrum and euthanasia at the other end. Because God is the author of life and of death. And I'm afraid we have to say this. One can't believe that one has to say something so obvious. But God determines a person's gender. And yet we have this appalling transgender movement today. It's all part of the uh, homosexual attack upon our Christian civilization. But what are the churches going to do about it? Are they going to say, oh yes, we must be really sympathetic to those people who want to change their gender? Or are they going to tell people to stop sinning and stop rebelling against God? The creator God determines a person's gender. It's a form of child abuse to tell a young boy or a young girl 
that they could become the other gender. How utterly foolish, how abhorrent. And yet, that is what our society is now getting into. This is one of the fruits of rejecting God. God is great. He is holy. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Beauty here refers to God's unspeakable exaltation and dignity of status. Man in contrast to the holy God is a a mere sinner, a mere worm. God's infinitely supreme nature must always, of course, be reflected in our worship. And that is where the churches have gone so wrong today. Worship has been degraded into some light, casual, social gathering where we're entertained by the band at the front. And the greatest crime you can commit is to be serious in worship. That's where we are in modern Britain. We've forgotten the seriousness of worshipping the holy God. Christian worship should never be flippant. It should never be light. It should never be informal. Our task is not to market the Christian message to make it acceptable to an unbelieving mind. Our task is to teach men to learn to fear God. This psalm is telling us the obligation upon all to submit to the Holy God, the one true Trinitarian God. The creator and governor of this earth. All the other gods are nothing. All the other religions are false. And so we must declare to men today. Submit to Christ the King. And then you too will be able to sing the new song of salvation and everlasting life. Amen.